We live in a world where there are an innumerable number of forces that are out there intent to divide us. We live in a world that subcategorizes people based on their race, based on their gender, based on their nationality, based on how much money they have, based on how attractive they are, and all of these things. And then you take that and you rank people in order based on those things. And we ha live in a world where uh, division is a very common and very natural part of it. And that can create a lot of uh, Hostility, obviously, you can look at the world around us and you can see that there is hostility because people don't like that type of prejudice and people don't like that type of division, especially people who are on the lower end of it. People who suffer because of that prejudice, people who are overlooked or people who are despised or looked down upon, they end up being quite uh, angry about that. And that's not a modern thing. That's not a, a thing that has only recently come into existence. But if you look at societies across the world, if you look throughout world history, that's very common. Human beings are prejudiced. Uh, we, we just are. We, we, uh, I've, I know I've discussed it before, but prejudice is a very natural, very healthy thing in some ways. What I mean by that is uh, stereotyping. It's like you have to stereotype if you're going to survive. If I pick up an apple, I can tell you that this is a fruit, it's an apple, and then I can eat it. And I could have never seen that apple before in all my life. But do you know why I can tell you that? Because I've seen other apples. And I'm judging that apple based on my previous history with apples. We do snap judgments and stereotypes with everything we see all day long and you have to do it or else you won't be able to survive. You need to be able to tell, I can eat that because I've seen other things like that. You need to be able to tell, that's a chair. I may have never seen it before, but I know what to do with it because I've seen other things that are like it. Like that's the way our brains are wired. We see things, we put them in categories, and we, we make assumptions about them based on those categories. What becomes really difficult is knowing when to stop doing that and knowing how to, uh, how to control that so that that tendency doesn't end up uh, causing us to make incorrect snap judgments about people based on others we've met that are like them or based on what our culture tells us about them. That's, that's one of the ways that, that racism and stereotypes and that prejudices can become so harmful is because once there is an idea that's implanted in people's minds about a group, then every individual they see of that group becomes just part of that larger idea. And that can so often be wildly inaccurate and unhelpful and harmful. And so stereotyping, it's essential. We do it all the time. We do it every single day with everything that we see. But we need to know how to, as people, control that and monitor that and be aware of that. And so that's one of the reasons that, that things are put in place sometimes to try to monitor that because it is a natural tendency. And so, and so sometimes with hiring processes, people will come up with things that, okay, well, you have to have it this diverse, you know? And, and those, the reason that people do that is to try to, to monitor there's prejudices that, that sometimes get put into systems. Now, I know that we can talk about that, you know, if we want to, but my point is there are, there are natural tendencies towards stereotype and towards prejudice, and then there are ways that we try to, to overcome those things. I say all of that to say this. There are a million ways that the world tries to divide us. There are a million ways that people try to divide, whether it's based on your political affiliation, and then people will make assumptions about you based on that, or whether it's based on your race, or where you go to church, or what you look like, or, uh, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of tall people who aren't good at basketball, but who get picked first for the team, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> I'm not very good at basketball, but I've been picked first. I thought, oh no, they're going to be so disappointed. Uh, that can happen sometimes, uh, because people stereotype. 
One of the ways that Paul fights against prejudice and stereotype repeatedly throughout his letters is by appealing to a Christian practice that is intended to do away with those. And we spent this morning talking about that practice. That's the practice of baptism. One of the things that's really beautiful about baptism is it is something that is intended to unify people no matter what category the world has placed you in. Baptism is for you, and you can be unified with everyone else who, who submits to it. Everyone else who is baptized in the name of Jesus and is baptized uh, into the, the church and the community of God, like, you become part of a fellowship where you are one with one another. And it doesn't matter what categories the world has placed you in, you're now part of something bigger than that. You're now in Christ. Um, we talked about some of the baptisms in the book of Acts earlier. And if you consider how many thousands of people were baptized during the time period that the book of Acts was written, it's remarkable how the cases that we have, why they were selected. I mean, if you could have chosen thousands of baptisms, why is it that the Philippian jailer is chosen? Why is it that Lydia is chosen? Why is it that the Ethiopian eunuch is chosen? And I think there is intentionality behind it. And we discussed some of that this morning. The fact that you look at Acts chapter 2, right in the heart of Jerusalem, you have all of these Jews and you have people who have come from all these different walks of life and they're there all these different places, I mean, and they're there in Jerusalem uh, for Pentecost. And one of the things that's interesting about that Acts 2 story is there are a lot of verbal and thematic similarities between that and the Tower of Babel story only they are reversed. Uh, a lot having to do with people from all over the world being united together in one city and uh, their languages, if you remember in the Tower of Babel story, their languages are all the same at first, but then they get dispersed. Uh, whereas in Acts 2, they all have different languages, but then God miraculously unites them through the gift of tongues to where they can all hear them speaking in their same language. And it's almost like this picture of the divisions at Babel being reversed there in Acts chapter 2. And then 3,000 of them are baptized so that it no longer matters where they came from or what language they spoke. They all have something that has united them. And then you read this description of the church and how they have all things in common. They're selling their property and their possessions and they're giving them to one another and they are sharing meals day by day. They're praising God and they're all in one accord. And it's like this beautiful, perfect image of the church. I think it's intentional that, that that's how the baptism stories in the book of Acts begin. But then as you keep reading, you begin to see it spreads from that Jerusalem church and you start seeing baptisms of the Samaritans. By the way, Jews don't much like Samaritans. Uh, and Samaritans don't much care for Jews either. They were uh, at odds with one another and yet something unites them and it's in baptism. And then you have this baptism of an Ethiopian eunuch, which we talked about earlier. An Ethiopian eunuch who, not only is he from Africa and is a eunuch and is in service to a pagan queen, but he had just gone to Jerusalem where, according to the book of Deuteronomy, he's not supposed to be accepted fully into the assembly of the Lord. And so he would have experienced division or separation while he was there, but now he's able to hear the gospel. He's able to not be prevented from being baptized, but he goes and he's baptized uh, right there that instant, and he goes on his way rejoicing. You have the gospel being brought to Africa into a eunuch of, of all people who would have ordinarily been used to exclusion throughout his life. The stories continue and you get Saul. <laughs> Saul's a Pharisee, but he's a persecutor of the church, like the, the, the most unlikely sinner of all who you would expect to be baptized and have his sins washed away. 
He's baptized and he has his sins washed away. You keep reading through, you have Cornelius who comes up next. Cornelius is a Gentile and Peter actually won't do it. Peter refuses. Peter has a vision three times and every time he's like, I'm not going to go eat unclean food because he's still subcategorizing. He's still making his stereotypes and he's still excluding because of those. And it takes visions and divine prophecy from God to get him out of Joppa to go visit the Gentile. By the way, it's really fascinating that Peter's in Joppa, unwilling to go to a Gentile. Do you remember the book of Jonah, where Jonah is, uh, is uh, uh, where he embarks on the boat to go flee, to get away uh, from going and speaking to Gentiles? Joppa. Uh, Peter is like faced with this Jonah moment. Is he going to go to the Gentile or is he going to run away? And three times he just tells the vision that he wants to run away, but he eventually goes to the Gentile and he finds out that I cannot prevent him from being baptized. That's actually what he says. He says, can we prevent them from being baptized? Can we withhold water from him on whom the Holy Spirit has fallen just like it did us? And then Cornelius is baptized. Paul begins his missionary journeys and he starts going to these Gentile cities. And sometimes he'll meet Jews there. He meets a, a woman in, in, in Philippi. She's from Thyatira, a woman named Lydia. And she and her household is baptized. Then he ends up getting beaten and thrown into a, a jail. And the Philippian jailer, of all people, is baptized. It's like, you read through this and you see men, you see women, you see Jews, you see Gentiles, you see Ethiopian eunuchs, you see persecutors of the church, you see uh, jailers uh, on behalf of the Roman Empire. You see, like, all of these people, some of whom are the most unexpected in the world, being united together in this one common practice where we all, in honor of Jesus, are baptized and we enter into one community together. Baptism is a unifying movement that does away with the stereotypes and the prejudices and all of the categories that the world wants to put upon us. All of the reasons that the world tells us to be divided from one another, baptism does away with those and it unites us together, which is why I believe as you read through Paul's letters, there's this, he doesn't always word it the exact same way, but there's this recurring idea that pops up when he discusses baptism. And uh, we're going to look at three of those passages tonight, and we're going to see how Paul uses this, this formula about baptism. And he uses it three different times, and uh, it all is about unity in the church. So the first one is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> the church at Corinth had problems with division. Uh, you can read through all the way from the very you know, first chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. I urge, therefore, that there be no divisions among you, but that you speak the same thing and be of the same mind and, and uh, that you walk together. Like There are divisions at the church at Corinth, and they are divided about just about everything you can think of, uh, whether it is uh, you know, which evangelists they want to commit themselves to and who they prefer, or whether it's about suing each other, or whether it's about a man who's having relations with his father's wife, which is not a good situation or whether it's about uh, how to treat, uh, you know, the opposite sex with regards to sexual action and marriage and all of that. Like, you'll find all these different topics, whether or not they can eat meat from, the, from the, the marketplace. Because if you go to the marketplace to buy meat, guess what? That meat's been used as a sacrifice to an idol. 
but if I don't believe in the idol, can I eat the meat? Well, they believe in that. All of a sudden, like, people have a lot of different views on that. Some people are going to say, no, that's idol meat. You can't eat that. Other people are going to say, I don't even believe in an idol. I'm just like meat. And, uh, and so they'll argue with each other. Paul has to try to work through all of those types of things. Then, of all things to be divided on, when you get to chapter 12, you find out that the spiritual gifts that God has given the church uh, to unite the church in the service and the ministry of Christ has become something that they are divided about because they don't have the same gift. Uh, it's like we subcategorize people based on these different things. They were categorizing people based on speaking in tongues versus prophecy versus healing versus, uh, you know, administration versus, you know, you can come up with all these gifts. Like, they were ranking them, and it seems as though they were putting tongue speakers. I don't know if they were. The tongue speakers seem to be putting the tongue speakers at number one on that list and looking down on everyone else. And Paul has to spend a couple of chapters trying to combat that. He tries to remind them what the greatest gifts are. They are not speaking in tongues, and they're not prophecy. It's faith and hope and love. And do you know what faith, hope, and love do? They actually unify people. And the greatest of all is love. Love is something that will unify the church now and forevermore. There's never a moment, even 10 billion years from now on into our reward and in eternity, where love is not essential and crucial. Love is the unifying force. Uh, God is love. And so as you read through, he's going to try a lot of different ways to get them to be united, even though they're dividing over everything, even spiritual gifts. And one way that he tries to unite them is in chapter 12 by reminding them of their baptism. So if you look at chapter 12 in verse 12, he says, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so he wants to remind them of something. He wants to remind them at the beginning and end of verse 13 that there was one spirit who gave you these gifts. By one spirit, we were baptized into one body. And it doesn't matter, by the way, what categories the world has put you in, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or frees. That's the, the expression that Paul's going to go back to in other books also when he talks about baptism. He will often say, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, whether male and female, like he will go back to that recurring phrase to talk about. It doesn't matter where you've come from or what social standing the hierarchy of the world has put you into. You are one when you were baptized. And when you received your gifts of the Spirit, there's only one Spirit giving those gifts. And so it's not like if you have different gifts, the source was ultimately the same and the purpose is ultimately the same. The source is the Holy Spirit and the purpose is unified, building one, in, building one another up. Don't destroy the work of the Spirit for the sake of your selfishness. Remember your baptism. You were all baptized. Like you all have that in common. You all were reborn together in that moment and you are all now part of one body, which is the body of Christ. Don't dare harm the body of Christ for the sake of your divisions. And so the way that Paul tries to instruct the church on unity is by reminding them of their, the unity that took place at baptism. One spirit into one body. And it doesn't matter what you were before that. You are now united with one another. When you get to uh, Galatians now, chapter 3, there's going to be another one of these passages. Paul's going to discuss baptism. 
And he's going to use a very similar formula to talk about it, uh, that that unity formula. In chapter 3, in verse 26 of the book of Galatians, he says, For you are all sons of God. Now, that's a strange thing to write, by the way, to a church that has both men and women in it. Uh, I think he's going to explain himself here in just a second. But if you were to like look at the world at that time, and basically if you look at the world at a lot of times, uh, I've been trying to, so I'm not in school right now, and so this year I've been trying to uh, do some like reading of like the great literature that I've never read before. And uh, I've read uh, Anna Karenina, War and Peace, and uh, Pride and Prejudice. And you know what all of those have in common? Well, two of them are super long, but uh, you know what the other ones, you know what they all have in common? Uh, there are all of these class distinctions, and there's constant, like, this relationship can't happen because he's of a higher class than she is. His family has uh, more nobility or more money. Her family doesn't have quite as much, and so that relationship's not going to work. But they want it to work. But anyway, there's all of these, the segregation based on class, and there's pride and there's prejudice uh, that goes along with that and uh, there's sometimes it leads to a lot of difficulty and that's what most of the major tension in the stories are about is about uh, some of these class divisions that uh, that have started but one thing that you'll notice is the women their primary way of trying to help out their family if their family's in a bad situation is by marrying a really wealthy person because they are not generally going to get wealth on their own. And they generally are not going to be the ones who get a big inheritance. So it's like the, the son gets the big inheritance and the daughters don't get quite so much. Uh, and so the daughters, if they want to be taken care of, they need to marry well. Um, what you see right here in verse 26, he says, you're all sons of God. So if you were a female, um, you have the same rights before God as a son of God. Uh, you know, ordinarily in their society, women were seen as a, a lower rung on that ladder, and they wouldn't have received the same as a son would. But what we're finding out is that you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Your faith in Christ makes you a son of God. Why? Because something happened in verse 27. Because you were baptized. Your faith made you a son of God because you were baptized into Christ. That's how your faith made you a son of God. He says in verse 27, For you were all baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. And Jesus is the ultimate son of God, right? He is the unique son of God, unlike any other. And so now that you're in Christ, whether you're male or female, you're all sons of God. And you're all clothed with the son of God. You're all clothed in Christ. And so verse 28 Here's where he gives the formula. formula. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Doesn't matter, you know, you wouldn't normally have a a Greek son and a Jewish son, right? Because generally you're going to be the same family. But he's saying you're all in one family now. So it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Greek. You're all sons of God. And it doesn't matter whether you are a slave or a free man. Well, generally, the, the wealthy landowner's son isn't a slave, right? His son is going to be the heir. But what he's saying is it doesn't matter whether you're free or whether you're a slave. You're united because you're both clothed in Christ. You're clothed in the son. You are sons of God equally before God. God doesn't much care for these class designations. This is a free man and this is a slave. God sees you both as children of his, as sons of his. And then he says, neither male and female. 
Again, that's what we started off with. That's how you can all be sons of God, because you're all equally heirs of the eternal life that God has and then the, the inheritance that God has in store for you. So you are all, verse 28, one in Christ Jesus. Um, if you read this, what's interesting is for half of those categories mentioned, uh, you know, Greek, uh, slave, and female, it, Greek, it really depends on who you're asking, but, uh, but with the other two especially, they're going to hear this and they're going to like the fact, oh, we're equal. So like the slave can look at his master and say, we're equal. And that's a really nice sounding thing for a slave to hear that he's equal to his master. Um, the reverse of that, however, isn't always going to be a very popular teaching. When you start telling masters, you're now equal to your slave, that's not going to sound as good to a master. Uh, the person who in the world he's been told day after day, you're so much better than your slave, or a man, you're so much more important than your wife, or really, it depends on who you ask, but if you're a Jew, you're better than a Gentile, and if you're asking a Gentile, you're better than the Jew. But what you have here is sometimes the gospel, in its efforts to unify, is going to be great news to some and really offensive to others. To other people, this idea of unity can be an offensive idea, which will make them want to walk away from it, which might be one of the reasons why Christianity was most popular among the poor and among women and among slaves. In fact, you can look at, at numbers uh, in the early church, and it becomes pretty obvious that Christianity was primarily dominated by women and by the poor. Um, in fact, some of the philosophers who critiqued and criticized Christianity criticize it on the grounds that you don't have a lot of great men that are Christians. It's mostly the insignificant people in society. It's mostly women. It's mostly the uneducated. It's mostly the poor. And that was one of the criticisms of Christianity. Because, let's face it, if your Lord and Messiah is crucified, you're not going to be the one who is reaching the upper echelon of society. A crucified Messiah isn't that appealing. That's like, that's the opposite of what you would expect a Messiah to be. He, he seems like a young criminal, uh, you know, not, not a man of great renown and importance. Who are the important people going to honor? Well, they're going to honor the most important person who seems like it, like Caesar or someone like that, someone who's wealthy and has armies and military and title and all of that. And so, when you hear these words about unity, they're wonderful. I think they're very, very valuable in the church. But you also, the deeper you get into the context of them, you come to realize they're excellent news for some, and they're rather offensive to others. And God's okay with that, because sometimes you need to be offended in order to realize that God has something better in his mind than you have in yours. Sometimes the way you see the world needs to be transformed and changed, even if it's hard to do. Uh, there is um, a famous quote uh, from uh, a Greek philosopher, uh, Thales of Miletus. Um, he was regarded as one of the first Greek philosophers of the Western tradition. And he used to say this, which I, I don't know if Paul has this in mind or not. It's interesting if Paul has heard this before. Because uh, what he says is pretty similar to, to what uh, Thales says. But Thales says this, I thank the gods for three things. First, that I was born a human and not a beast. But then notice, second, that I was born a man and not a woman. Third, that I was born a Greek and not a barbarian. Um, he looked at the world 
And based on his view of the world, it's much better that he was born a man in a Greek than a barbarian or a woman uh, or an animal. Um, but, uh, but you look through that, and Paul is very much critiquing that idea and saying that in the eyes of God, who is no respecter of persons, baptism can be for the Ethiopian eunuch, and it can be for the Gentile, and it can be for the Jew, and it can be for the Pharisee, and it can be for all of these people, and they all become one, whether you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Finally, I want to look at Colossians chapter 3. This is the third uh, passage we'll look at. This is a baptism text where Paul is going to use that same expression or a very similar variation of it uh, in Colossians chapter 3 in verse 11. This is the one that's probably the least clear to see that it's a baptism text, but if you just follow in the context, you'll, get, you'll, you'll see where the baptism in the text is. Um, if you look at uh, Colossians chapter 3 in verse 11, we're going to work backwards through it to get us back to where the idea begins, where he starts talking about baptism. But in chapter 3 and verse 11, he says, A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So again, he uses this list of these categories that the world uses to divide people. And he says that in Christ, these categories come to nothing because Christ is all and Christ is in all. So whether you are a barbarian or a Greek, like, like, like Thales, I'm, thank God that I'm a Greek and not a barbarian. Well, Paul says in Christ, that distinction's done away. Uh, male and female, uh, or sorry, slave and free man, Greek and Jew, Scythian, slave, and all of these different things. He's saying that these are done away. Why? Well, if you back up to the verses before it, look at verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to the image of the one who created, uh, to, according to the knowledge of the image of the one who created him, in which there is no Jew and Greek. So you become this, you know, this community in which there's no Jew, Greek, slave, free, uh, barbarian, Scythian, when you lay aside the old self and put on the new self. By the way, that's, that is very much Paul's baptism language in Romans 6, where he describes baptism as a crucifying the old man and putting on the new man. But you can go back a little bit further than that. Uh, look at like verse 8. As he talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new self, verse 8 is telling you some of the things that uh, you put off. But now you also... Put them all aside. This is what it means to put off the old self. You put these things aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Uh, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self. And then you put on the new self. Uh, and so he's describing this transformation of killing the old self, putting on the new self. If you look back a little bit before that, like in verse 5 of chapter 3, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. When did you die to these sins? When does Paul use that type of language of dying to certain sins? That's baptism language. And if you look at the verse right before it, in verse 4, he talks about Christ being our life. Why is Christ our life? Look at verse 3 right before it. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. So at some point you died. 
Well, if he's talking to dead people, they're not going to be able to read this. <laughs> he has to be using dead in some sort of spiritual sense, right? He's talking about dead, the death that comes at baptism, where you put aside your old self. And now everything is Christ because you're a new self. If you look back at chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, wait a minute, when were you raised up with Christ? Well, you probably died with Christ, and then we're raised up with Christ, right? Um, you can keep doing this all the way back. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? As if you were still living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? When did you die with Christ? He mentions it right there. If you have died with Christ, when did that happen? Again, that's baptism language. If you keep moving uh, further back, you look at verse 13 of chapter 2. When you were dead, there's that dead language again. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of your transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt. So at some point you were dead, but then you were made alive with Christ. And when that happened, he forgave all of your debts and your sins. Right? That's a really powerful idea. Some sort of action took place where you went from being dead to being alive with Christ and your transgressions and sins were forgiven. What was that moment? Well, look at verse 12. And we've reached it. Uh, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also work, uh, so in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised Jesus from the dead. So when you were baptized, you were dead, but then you were buried with him in baptism and raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised Jesus from the dead. So the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now raising you from the dead in baptism. And guess what happens when you were buried, with, when you died, were buried with him and raised up with him? Well, all of your transgressions were forgiven. And uh, he, he uh, got rid of your debt and he nailed it to the cross. And he, if, like chapter 2 and verse 20, if you died with Christ, well, you know what that is. He just told you. It's baptism. Therefore, if we've been raised up with Christ, chapter 3 and verse 1, that's baptism. Chapter 3 and verse 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. Chapter uh, 3 and verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed. Like all of these are the language that he just used about baptism. And so Colossians chapter 2 and 3 becomes probably the lengthiest discussion of what baptism means in all of the Bible. He spends a couple chapters talking about the transformation that took place when you were dead, buried with Christ, and then raised up with him. And it all leads to this profound moment in chapter 3 and verse 11, where after putting off the old self and putting on a new self, he says a renewal has taken place in you in that moment, in which, verse 11, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Baptism does a lot of stuff for us. Forgives us of our transgressions, cancels out our debts, disarms the rulers and authorities who are out uh, against us. A baptism means that, that you can't be judged anymore based on uh, new moons or Sabbath days, or you can't be disqualified based on visions seen in temples and worship of angels and self-abasement. And baptism means that you shouldn't listen to sources outside of Jesus because Jesus becomes your ultimate source for life. Baptism means that uh, you have died to the elementary principles of this world and the traditions and, and the self-made religions and all of that. Baptism means you should focus on the things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Baptism means that your life is hidden with God in Christ. Christ and that you are now with Christ. 
Like, you were buried with him, you were raised with him, and you're now living with Christ as a new man who has put off all of the things like anger, malice, wrath, selfishness, and all of those things, and you have put on the image of Jesus. And now you are united with everyone who has done that because now you all have the same thing in common. In baptism, those distinctions that divided us are washed away and now we have something in common with one another. All of this, I think, can lead us to some pro- profound points uh, about something about baptism that we don't often talk about. When we talk about baptism, usually we talk about like forgiveness of sins, which is really, really important. Uh, we talk about maybe the gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we talk about entering into the church. We talk about a lot of different things. But one thing that I think is really, really important about all these baptism texts is a proper understanding of baptism makes it clear that Racism is a sin. A proper understanding of baptism makes it clear that nationalism, that uh, the idea of I'm better than you because of my nation, or I'm better than you because of my race, or I'm better than you because of my sex, or I'm better than you because of uh, my, my social rank, or how much money I have, or all of those things, those are sinful and contrary to what the unity in Christ that we're called to have is all about. Baptism washes those distinctions away, and we are now called to be a new man who is united based on Jesus himself. And I think that that is a profound and beautiful and really helpful point for us to remember as we consider what the church is all about. There are churches all throughout this world who talk in different languages, who look different, who have different socioeconomic status and all of that, and we are all valuable and equal and united in the eyes of God. God's not a respecter of persons. For us, it's very easy to make these distinctions, but God doesn't do it. God looks at his son, and when you're clothed in his son, you are his son. And when you are his son, he doesn't make those types of distinctions about where you came from, how much you have, or what you look like. You're his son and will be treated as such. I think that's a pretty beautiful thought. If there's anyone here tonight who uh, would like to be united with the family of God, would like to be seen as a son of God, to be clothed in Christ, to be forgiven, and to give it this renewal where you become one with the community of his people, we pray that you let that be known and come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.